Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Thank you. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We are held together ultimately by Christ, the preeminent one. That's who we just sang to. That's who we just sang about. And what an amazing reminder of his goodness and grace and presence in our lives through his spirit. I'm so grateful to be with you this morning again. My name is Stephen Zarelli. I'm one of the pastors at Woodside and really have the privilege of overseeing our campuses and um, helping our campus pastors and really leading our preaching team as well. And this week, we're going to take a little bit of a a diversion. Uh, We're going to step aside from our series on Lamentations with the news last week uh, with Pastor Brent and Pastor Andrew. Uh, And, you know, it it just seemed like going back into Lamentations and more mourning. Um, (laughs) That's hard. That's really hard to do. So I, I want to share with you guys today something that I think is so important in seasons of transition and seasons of life that has meant so much to me. It's really been my life's work in many ways over the last 10 years. Uh, this is a topic and uh, really a principle and these ideas that is really the ground or the foundation of a dissertation that I'm working on even now. So it's very deeply embedded in who I am as a person, as a pastor. And I think it's so important for our church today. And sometimes when we go through these seasons, I think it's so important to simply go back to the basics, just back to the basics. What does it mean that we are a church What does it mean that you are a church? Where is our identity found? What are the practices that matter the most to us as we then further the mission and cause of Jesus Christ? If you would, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can grab grab it and turn there. And I would ask for you, if you would, simply to stand as we read God's word together just for a moment to give respect to the Lord's word and honor it as I read these very familiar verses, starting in verse 42. Let me remind you as we turn there that Christ, I mean, there's no better leader, the God-man, divinity in flesh, something we call the hypostatic union, a mystery that we could never fully comprehend. Their rabbi, their teacher, their savior, their Lord, the Messiah, was not with them. Was not with them. And what did they do? Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. In September of 1934, it was just four years before the start of the Second World War, Dietrich Bonhoeffer accepted the role of leading an illegal seminary that became established in an abandoned estate in Feichtenwald near Stetten. He led and lived with a small cohort. It was just 23 men in this simple community with the goal of training leaders for the new confessing church. The confessing church was the only clear alternative to the absurdity that had come upon the, 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 the Christian church in Germany. Uh, it had been overrun by the Nazi regime. And it had become a propaganda machine, simply proclaiming that message of hatred and twisting and distorting the very words of God and the good news of the gospel of Christ to the people of that nation, which is so very sad, certainly with its history, with so much depth and beauty coming out of German theologians and leaders. And yet during that time, it had abandoned in large part so much of that scholarship. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer took these men and begun this underground church called the Confessing Church in the midst of all of that. Of course, nine years later, if you know the story, he was arrested and eventually martyred at a prison camp in Flossenburg on April 9th, 1945 for his role in a failed assassination plot against Adolf Hitler. Two weeks after that time, on April 23rd, the Allies actually marked, marched into that specific prison camp. He missed freedom by two weeks. He was engaged to be married, not yet even 40 years old. A week after that, Hitler committed suicide and the war was over. As Bonhoeffer reflected upon his experience at the seminary, he wrote a classic devotional. It's a book that I read nearly every single year called Life Together. If you have never read that book, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I read it every year or so. These are the words that he gave as he reflected upon that time. He was living in a different time, a different day, a different world, but Bonhoeffer understood and modeled something critical to the Christian faith that most of us in our culture and society have grossly neglected. And I think it's so relevant and pertinent to this particular season of Woodside Chesterfield. He recognized that the gospel informs more than what we believe. It's more than simple intellect and information. It informs not just what we think, but how we live. How we live specifically in community. The gospel shapes our identity, who we are, and it places us in the family of God. It puts us into the context of a Christian community united in Christ. That was ultimately the dream of Feichtenwald. Spiritual family was the fundamental setting undergirding his discipleship plan, which he trained preachers and teachers who would be ready to stand against the inherent godlessness and all the attacks of the culture around them, so that when things got incredibly difficult, even to the point of death, they would stand together united as a spiritual family in Christ through every season. Listen to how he describes the rich blessing of community. He says, It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. 
It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. That the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. 23 people meant to lead a movement of faithfulness to God's word and God's kingdom against a raging, violent, socialistic empire. Does that story sound at all familiar? It should. It's exactly what Jesus is doing with his band of followers. The same thing, investing in the few, living as spiritual family, teaching them the word of God so that they might stand for God's kingdom in the midst of of godlessness. So Acts 2:42 it talks really about many rhythms of this early church, many things that we ought to practice. I just want to highlight two of them today and then dive deeper into this concept because wrapped in all of this is this concept of community and the importance of spiritual family banding together for Christ and how we are successful in our mission when we do just that. It says of course in scripture that the world will know us by our our love for one another, our love for one another, our community, the way that we express our relationships together. The Bible isn't as complicated as it's made out to be sometimes. It's ultimately the, this New Testament story, of course, is a group of Christians who want to fulfill God's purpose and experience God's pleasure by adding to the kingdom people who are being saved. And then every page of this story shows us that they must commit to a life in Christ-centered community. We cannot fulfill our purpose unless we are committed to a life of Christ-centered community. And I want to talk about that community for a few moments today. What is your relationship like with this church family? With your spiritual community? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what is your responsibility to the people around you in this room? What is your level of concern for them? What, what is your spiritual, God-given responsibility one to another? How deep does that go? How far does that go? Does it really even matter? Is that really just the job of a staff team? And one couple or pastor? Or is it a collective responsibility? You know, this text shows us two environments that these brothers and sisters were committed to as they lived out their faith. One is the temple and one is the home. And we have to be committed to the same environments as we live out our faith, experiencing worship together, that's the temple, and experiencing life together and living out on mission together in our life groups, that's the home. These are the two places we live out our values as disciples of Jesus. And our number one value, one of the things we talk about all the time at Woodside, is that we are family who love and live the Word of God. Are you committed to worship gatherings? It sounds so simple. 
Get together. The church has been doing this since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Get together on what we call the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. That's why the church meets on Sunday and gather and hear the word of God together, being equipped for the work of the ministry for the glory of the Father. Are we truly committed to this space? Well, Every study we know shows, you've heard all the statistics, the average churchgoer, the average Christian, committed Christian in our culture can muster up about 1.8 times a month to experience that community. And I am so grateful, of course, for all the gifts of technology that we have, certainly during seasons of pandemic, and yet at the same time, we must never... Never substitute this idea that just simply watching by ourselves at home can replace this space. It just can. That's like me saying, I'm married to you, Katie, my wife, but we are not in the same home. We never hug. We never touch. We're never physically near one another. We just live in separate parts of the universe. That wouldn't make a marriage work. There's no even life, even new life that comes from that type of relationship. And so we need to spend and be committed to this time together. Don't ever allow anything to steal from you or tempt you away from the gift of community together as we worship God. He is worthy. He's worthy of your time on Sunday. He's worthy of a few short moments together before we go off into the crazy chaos of this world with a thousand different messages that they're trying to infuse your brain with. We need the power and authority of his word and we need the encouragement of one another. We're committed to our worship gatherings. Are you committed to experiencing life and living on mission in a life group? Sounds simple, but every study shows that this is an environment that we aren't really all that committed to. Why? Because it's hard to prioritize. It's hard to stick together when there's so many things nagging at our calendar. The biggest place, the biggest battlefield of our spiritual lives is our calendars. You control that, you control your spiritual life under the lordship of Christ? Or does it have control of you? I can't do that. I can't invest there. Oftentimes, spiritual community becomes this lowest common denominator. I'll give that space when I have time and when it's convenient. I wonder if Dietrich with these 23 men, as they would climb a hill near Feichtenwald, he put it specifically the seminary there, this underground seminary, because they could climb a hill nearby. Right over the crest of the hill was a whole army camp where Nazi soldiers were being trained. And it was a reminder to these men, this is why we are doing this. In verse 42, it talks about this fellowship, and that's really our first point, that devote yourself to fellowship. It's the word koinonia. It means common. It means that they lived a common life, not a normal life, a shared life. They experienced life and they, they lived out their faith together, not just in their nuclear families, mom, dad, and children, or parent and children, but together they were devoted to a shared life. It was a commitment, a rhythm. It was part of their identity. It wasn't optional. It wasn't superficial. It was devotion. It was covenant community. And that's what made it so unique. 
They weren't just committed to fellowship. They were committed to something wonderful. And I hope you come back for this just after our next service. You guys came to the early ones, so maybe that means you want to go get a coffee, drop home, and come back. I would love for you to come back because it's part of our time together. Because today, we're going to have some lunch together. We're going to break bread. Pizza, in this case. And they were committed to breaking of bread to the breaking of bread. They ate together. Why is that so important? It's such a simple thing to do, just to eat together, to thank the Lord for his sustenance, to thank the Lord for communion, to thank the Lord for what he has given us. This was a symbolic meal, of course, communion, reminding them of the sacrifice of Christ and the fact that his death and resurrection is what brings us into the family of God in the first place. And that's what it says in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they were an imperfect group of people in Acts chapter 2, devoted to sharing life together as spiritual family. And what happened as a result of that? They were, they were glad. They were filled with generosity. They praised God together. People saw their faith and wanted it. People saw their love for each other and wanted it. People saw their community and they recognized that's not what we have. We want it. That's why it was so explosive in the culture. As people looked at them and said, that is different. Is that what they see? That is not dependent upon any man, any person. It is a communal expression. And I've been at this church 19 years. I've been through a lot of change. I've been through a lot of seasons of ups and downs. I've seen a lot. I, my wife and I talk about staff often. We say they come and they go. They come and they go. <laughs> and it's hard every single time. But it doesn't remove from us this reality that by, by, by the Spirit of God, when we band together and practice this way of life in the context of our wor world, those who are being saved will be drawn to us. And that is ultimately our mission. That's our mission. They were free to live this way. And if we are free to live this way, is this, if, if this is how Jesus intends us to live, a spiritual family of sharing life together, then what stops us from experiencing the same joy, the same generosity, that same movement for the kingdom? This is kind of where some of my studies come in, so I want to just give you some background into this because I think, again, it's so helpful for us. One author, his name is Joseph Hellerman, he talks about this problem in his book, When Church Was a Family. And I heard you guys last week talk about this room as your family room. And all I'm doing is pressing deeper to say, really live that out. Just motivating you, encouraging you to say, live that out. If you're on the fringe, come into the family room. If you're on the edge, come into the family. Be committed. This is the word of God's way of teaching us how to further our mission. So this is what Joseph Hellerman says. He says, I suggest that it is the unique orientation of Western culture, especially contemporary American society, that best explains our propensity to abandon rather than work through the awkward and painful relationships we so often find ourselves in. This is because of what anthropologists, people who study human behavior, this is what they call radical individualism. Radical individualism. 
We in America, this is how it's defined, have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, our own goals, and our own personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. So the point is that the immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. The result is that we leave and we withdraw instead of staying and growing up. Now, he also points out that nearly all societies throughout history have been and continue to be, it's a term called collectivism, collectivists in their view of the world. That means the good of the individual should take a back seat to the good of the group, and such an arrangement is in their best interest even for the individual. So this is what's called a strong group culture versus a weak group culture or a weak group society. Let me talk about this. In weak group societies, if your relationships are messy, then upgrade. Start over. Abandon them. If you don't feel fulfilled in your friendships, get some new ones. If you don't feel fulfilled in your job, change it. If you don't feel fulfilled in marriage, leave it. This is weak group society. The individual's needs are the highest aim. Any group, relationship, church, job, marriage to which we belong, that's only a means to an end to make sure that we feel fulfilled. That's radical individualism, a weak group society. Now, it didn't always be the, it wasn't always this way, even within American culture. It wasn't even that long ago, 1961, John F. Kennedy, maybe some of you guys remember this quote, ask not what your country can do for you, what's the rest of it? Ask what you can do for your country. That's strong group thinking. That's putting the group up here, the individual under here, and saying, what can you as an individual do for the health and the growth and the development of the group? That's a collectivist mindset. Now, it's not that strong group societies are always good or better. It's not really a better or a best or a bad and a good because strong group societies can really be explosively damaging. If the group is more important than the individual, then what's to keep the government or some place to say the individuals within that group, some of them don't matter. So wipe them out. That's exactly what happened during World War II. These people don't matter. They don't help the cause get rid of them. So, of course, there's massive atrocities that can happen in, Amer uh, in American history, global history, world history as a result of strong group societies. That's also in play here. Here's the difference. The difference is who is at the head of that strong group culture because the Bible is a strong group book. We find our identity as individuals within the body of Christ. And that is for our good. That is for our fulfillment. Ultimately, working to build his kingdom, expand his redemptive purposes for his glory. It's a strong group family. The difference is our father is perfect. And because our father is perfect, our family is different. So although world cultures can abuse 
their people within a strong group society, within the Christian community where we have a perfect heavenly father, we can know that all grace and mercy and forgiveness and love is ultimately and only found in him. So we embrace this. And yet, and yet, we have to recognize, church family, we have to recognize that this is not the way of our culture and society. This is the opposite way in which all of us, in many ways, have been groomed to think. Ephesians 2, 18, for through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Have you ever noticed when you're reading the word of God that every single one of these letters is written for the most part, there's just a couple exceptions to the group. The group got the message. The whole group was being written to. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, plural you, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, this church in Ephesus, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Matthew 12, I think, is an amazing passage when it comes to this concept of devoting yourselves to fellowship, koinonia, devoting yourselves to life and community, the breaking of bread. It says uh, in Jesus' life here, we'll pick up the story in chapter 12, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and made mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David, a messianic title? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, expressing in his divine nature, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Later on in this chapter in the story, while he was still speaking to the people, verse 46, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. They hear what's going on. They recognize her son, Mary's son, their brother, Jesus, is in trouble. He's causing a stir. He's actually creating enemies with the spiritual and religious leaders of the day. So they come to rescue him. So that he doesn't bring shame upon himself, shame upon their family, or even worse. And he, verse 48, replied to the man who told him that they had come. I mean, think about the words of Jesus. It's so courageous. It's so strong. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, who, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Family is the central social metaphor to describe the kind of interpersonal relationships that we are to be characterized by today in the church. Did you know that when we... We use this expression a lot, perhaps, if you've been around church a while. Personal Lord and Savior. Receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Do you know how many times personal Lord and Savior is used within the New Testament itself? It's used exactly zero times. Paul's use of our Lord, plural, our Lord, 53 times. 
my Lord, my individual faith, my Lord. Of course, we come to Christ individually, but we're brought into this strong group family. My Lord, how, how often is that emphasized? 53 for our Lord in Paul's writings. My Lord once, one time. Our church family needs to be reminded to take this cultural and theological leap. Jesus in this passage was not minimizing our responsibility to our wives, our husbands, our, our DNA family, our children. He's not minimizing that at all. What he's doing is he's elevating our responsibility to one another in Christ. It doesn't void our responsibility for one another in our nuclear families, in our blood families. That wasn't his point. He was saying, this is the highest personal responsibility within your relationships. I want you to understand that your relationship to those who are in Christ, it's even greater. And all the more so, of course, when our blood family is our brothers and sisters in Christ. Is that the way you view each other? When you look around the room, is, it, is that how you function? It's a hard reality to face how distant are sometimes cultures are within our congregations from the Word of God. But I'm telling you, this is the power of what keeps a church healthy and keeps us on mission and keeps us moving. And it's not just for the good of the kingdom, it's for the good of you. It's for the good of all of us. I remember when I first started experiencing this, I'll just share one story. It was uh, when I, my wife and I first started a life group. It was 2010. And we had walked up and down our street to the Caribou Coffee at the end of the street, I don't know how many times over the years, but we never knew a single, a single neighbor around us, just not, not even one. We'd never prayed for a home. And it hit us one year when we were thinking about all this, like we don't even know who the people are around us. And Woodside had started these things called life groups, and we started them with people who lived near us. At first, it was just like, who's in your geography? And so we pulled up a little map, and it plotted all the members of Woodside on this little map at the church. And, and I found out there was like eight Woodside families within two streets of us. And I had no idea. No idea. And so we started this little group together, and, and it was just one family, one street over, um, very different from us, different cultural background. We didn't know them well, the Watsa family. And then there was one family down the road who said, I called them, I'm like, hey, I'm a pastor at Woodside, and I'd been there 10 years, and they're like, we have no idea who you are. <laughs> It was just total cold call. So I didn't get like some advantage because I was on staff or whatever. They had no idea who I was. I'm like, yeah, well, we actually live on the same street. Do you want to come over to the house and maybe do some life together? So these strangers to us came over to our house and we started doing some life together. It just started with those three couples. We started connecting, praying. Every time we would gather, we'd have food. We started doing things for our neighbors. And eventually we connected with another woman who was on the other road. So we were kind of, they were all parallel. And this was the one to the south. And her name was Edith Holthus. Edith at the time was 89 years old when she joined our group. She's since passed. Uh, this was 2010, so she, she'd, be, she'd be over 100 at this point. But she was 89 when we met her. She was widowed. She lived by herself one street over. She would go to the Troy 830 service every Sunday faithfully, and she was a charter member. She started at the church in 1955. 
and she joined our group. And her birthday was right around Christmas time. It was actually Christmas Eve was her birthday, and she was turning 90. And Edith, it was like impossible to get her to our, our life group. And we always tried, but, but our life group would usually start at 6. And she's like, you know, my bedtime's kind of before that. So, like, 6 is kind of like 2 a.m. to an 89-year-old. So she's like, I, I'm not sure if I can make it. And so sometimes she'd make it, sometimes she wouldn't. Every time I saw her on Sunday at church, though, she'd give me a kiss on the cheek. Every Valentine's Day, my wife and I would take her flowers. And our kids were just little. Our two oldest ones were just babies at the time, but we started to get to know her. So we decided we're going to do a surprise birthday party for Edith. So we invited our church family from that life group over to the home. We invited neighbors who did not know Christ. Some were atheists, some were Muslim over to the home one evening. And we said, Edith, just this one time, would you just come have a meal with us? Just this one time, like take, in, take a five-hour energy, like do whatever you need to do. <laughs> just show up and like, you know, we'll, we'll keep you going. And so we convinced her and, and she shows up and she has no idea. It was a December day. And I opened the door and everybody else surprised, all her neighbors, her sister, some of her friends, the people from our life group. And she goes, <gasps> and she froze. And I thought I killed her. <laughs> like I thought I killed her. I thought I gave her a heart attack. I was just like, oh, I just killed sweet Edith. <laughs> and after a few seconds, tears just started coming down her face. And she said, it's the first surprise party I've ever had. That's family. It's just family. That kind of family and community is what changes the world. And that's not dependent on my position or a campus pastor's position. We love Andrew and Stacy. I hope that my wife and I are loved too. But the movement of the church is built on this kind of community. And that's what you're called to do. That's who you're called to be. I'll close with this. An interesting thing just about American uh, history. I have, I'm two minutes over, okay? I need to hurry it up. It's okay. Otto van Bismarck, maybe you didn't know this, in 1881, he was the minister president of Prussia. He presented a radical idea to the Reichstag. It was government-run financial support for the older members of society. In other words, we call it retirement. It was invented in 1881. Before that, of course, it was up to the family to care for their family. The idea was radical because back then people simply did not retire. So when Social Security Act in America was passed in 1935, the official retirement age in America was 65 years old. So it was passed in our country in 1935, and you had to be 65 in order to come to that space of life, that season of life, retirement, this government-run program. The interesting thing was, in 1935, when you're supposed to be 65 to retire, guess what the average life expectancy was for the American individual? 58. You never even made it. <laughs> At least most. 
By 1960, the life expectancy was almost 70 years old, and all of a sudden, more people were living past the age where they had permission to stop working, and they had the money to do it. Uh, John Piper, of course, gave a very famous message at a college graduation ceremony, and he was telling students not to waste their lives. He wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life, built upon that message, and he read the obituary of two missionary women who were older, who died in a car crash, went over a cliff while they were serving Christ together and in a foreign country. And then he read the obituary of a couple who had retired early, moved to the ocean, went on boat rides, played softball, and collected seashells. And he said, the American dream of radical individualism tells us that the way to go is to spend your days collecting seashells. That's, that's the end of it. That's what radical individualism leads to. That's the American dream. But let me just ask you the question, which is the greater tragedy? That's what he asked. Was it the couple who died serving Christ in a third world country, making disciples to the very end, or the ones who realized that individualism was the way they wanted to spend their days, separating from family, separating from mission, and living in peace by themselves away from those who love them and those who could care for them and those who they could teach? Now, I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm not saying if you have a house in Florida or whatever that it's a sin. (laughs) Please don't take it there. All I'm saying is that the American dream of radical individualism in a weak group society is the opposite of the way of the Scripture. And that's why when our churches follow the world's pattern, we do not see movement and you do not feel spiritual growth. It keeps us immature. And we have to grow up. So you're faced with a tough trial right now. I pray that you would have the strength to band together. To stick it through. To live this way. And to see God work. If you abandon the family, it might feel good. But you'll miss out on the miracle. You'll miss out on the power. So I pray that you'll stick it through for his glory.